I'm James St. James. This is Night Fever, New York Nightlife Legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. It's good to see you both. You're doing well, boys? Good yes, to see very you excited, very excited. Very excited. Our guest today is a downtown legend, a longtime LGBTQ icon, an original boy bar beauty. I cannot wait to talk about this. She's a performer, an artist, an artist's muse. She is a supermodel. She is a trans rights activist. And surprisingly, she is known as New York's baddest door bitch which is crazy to me because she's a big old cuddle puff as far as I've known. So I can't wait to talk about all of that. Welcome to the show, Connie Girl. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's so wonderful to see you. It's so good to see you. I was just saying before, I think it's been 25 years since I saw you last. Yeah. I was living um, on Avenue B, and I remember you were next door with living with Desmond. Yes. And we would see each other. You'd be leaning out, smoking a cigarette, and I'd be leaning out, trying to come down from a night of whatever. And we would wave to each other. And I think that was probably the last time we saw each other. Oh, my God. I miss you so, so much. I Well, it's funny because I was going through um, my diaries, as I always do before this. And there are so many nights, girl, where you and I were just out of control. Oh, my God. Running from area to limelight to everywhere, everywhere. To the after hours to save the robots. There was one night, and I'm just going to get this one out of the way right off the bat, where I was with you and Cody, and we were at Numbers, an after hours club. And I threw up on your shoe and you were furious with me. <laughs> you were wearing like Blonix or something. And I was on the ground and I crawled over to you and I threw up on your shoe. And I'm just getting that one out of the way right oh off. Oh my gosh. Like I remember. <laughs> like I remember. Well, I'm glad oh because if you were still holding on to that grudge, we would be having a problem. <laughs> <laughs> um. You were born in Jamaica and raised in Brooklyn. Yes. Guilty. And (laughs) so often on our show, uh, we have people from like Michigan or Idaho or Iowa, and they always talk about how they knew that they needed to get to New York to find their tribe. And I imagine with you growing up in Brooklyn, that must have been 10 times harder because it's right over the bridge and you've just, you're almost there. You, it is right within your reach, but it's so far away at the same time. Yeah. Is that, was that the case? Um, it was at your fingertips and it always seemed like a secret world. Yeah. It always seemed like you had to find the right um, looking glass to walk through. Mm-hmm. because it was it happened um, at night you had to know who you were going to who you were seeing where to go so it was it was um, I, I remember taking the D train and the D train would go over the, um, the Williamsburg Bridge and the city would be all lit up like a Versace dress and <laughs> you, you, you know you'd be looking at it and you'd be thinking, will I find, you know, my way to Oz? 
How old were you when you first discovered, when you first went to a, a club or you first got out in New York? When, when did that all, how old were you? When did it start? Um, I think around 17 ish. And I went to the fun house. Oh, okay. Which was sort of like a paradise garage. Yes. 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 But it was, but, but it was heavy Brooklyn cuisine, cuisinette, Italian. Um, <laughs> and then there, there were a couple of colors here and there. <laughs> and uh, jelly bean was spinning oh, in, right. the, okay. in the, in, in the DJ booth. And I remember one, uh, one night um, they were like, Oh, that bitch Madonna is in the booth with him. And it was, I think it was maybe, what was the first song? Burning Up, what was before? Burning Up or... or um, Holiday? Holiday. Yeah, Holiday so, was the big hit, yeah. I think Holiday had, might have come out by then, or it was coming out, and everybody thought she was black. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like trying to peek up in the in the in the dj booth and all i see is blonde hair and i'm like she that that who that can't be her what the hell is that who is that white woman <laughs> <laughs> um so after that i wasn't able to graduate high school the traditional way because something happened like my third year in gym class and it was either i go back to gym class and i die or you get the hell out. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't have um, enough PE credits wow. to graduate. And um, how do you get PE credits at home when you, if you're homeschooled? Like that's <laughs> sort of like a, right? What do you do? Um, you, you can like take it out by, oh, we went uh, to the park to roller skate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or like I, I sent the little whippersnappers. Um, you know, the Rugrats out to jog around the block. They walk the dog. <laughs> that's how that's how they get around it. So I uh, went and got my GED and went to um, apply at Parsons and FIT and I think Cooper Union. This is for fashion illustration yes. is what you what where you wanted to go. Yes. But yeah. um, my portfolio wasn't um, fully rounded. So they said, take a couple of night classes and come back. Mm -hmm. And within that time, I was like, well, I need a job. And I, um, was walking down Broadway and right out in front of uh, the antique boutique, there was a help wanted sign. And I went in and I got a job and just whom do you think was working? Well, I know this story, but I know you didn't get along at first. So, no, no. so give us the give us the tea. It was definitely two cats in a bag. Uh, <laughs> David Glamour Moore, Miss Glamour Moore, Glamour Moore, David Glamour Moore was um, working in the back, and I and they stationed me out in front. So we would like side eye each other and be like, "Oh, who? <laughs> what? I don't get it." <laughs> Let me go get lunch. So one day there was this floral, um, it was a floral 50s party dress. <laughs> and um, 
we had met in the middle and this uh, woman was admiring the dress and she looked at the label and it said, Mr. Blackwell. And she said, Oh, I wonder if it's the Mr. Blackwell. And we both in unison turned around and said, yes, Mr. Blackwell used to be a designer. And as it came out of our mouths, we actually looked each other in the eye and that was it. You wow. realized that you were a simpatico. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, Glamour was the one who introduced you to Matthew Kasdan. Yes. Right? Yep. Okay. Did you and Matthew start going out together? Did he start taking you around and showing you? When, when did you first go to Boy Bar? Um, David invited me to Boy Bar and... Um, I was, you know, an injured child trying to not only find my tribe, but to find myself and what I was always suppressing and not wanting to admit about myself to myself. So I was like, well, you know, let, let's, let, let's see what the gay bar can offer me. I walked in and I was still, you know, not there, but it was comfortable for me. I remember those first couple of times you came and you were just, you were a baby gazelle. You were a fawn. Uh -huh. You were all arms and legs. Uh -huh. You were about 10 feet tall. And I remember the whole bar just sort of went like, had whiplash. Like, what is this little child walking in here? Because you definitely, a bunch of old queens and then this 17 year old fawn walks in. I, I, by the way, I feel like that we were around during the fawn era of con like I remember I remember the fawn walking in and, and it's like an alien coming in. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely, definitely. But because the fawn needed the boy bar stage to sort of um go into its cocoon and come out. Yeah. Yes. So there there was the fawn stage when I was kind of feeling out and seeing where I where I fit in, but it was difficult because I couldn't accept or deal with what was going on and within me. I just want to ask you, what is the origin, the boy bar origin story? Because it feels like it always existed, but I know it didn't always exist. And because I know when Randy and I went there, I think it had just opened and we loved it. But where, how did it, did it I think boy bar was, uh, a salon before it became a bar or it was a bar and then Paul McGregor had the salon upstairs uh, which legend has it when Jane Fonda was doing clute she went there to go and get the clute cut oh wow oh of course I think I've heard that story too yeah because Paul McGregor is supposedly whom the lead character and shampoo is based off of. Wow. Okay. So we're talking 70s. Yes. We're talking, it yes. was way back in the late 60s, early 70s. Yes. Huh. But Matthew Kasdan must have sensed right off the bat that there was something about you because he snatched you up right away and, and said, I'm going to show you the world, right? Yeah. Because um, I think it was the third or the fourth time we went um, and 
Uh, David went to go and get a drink. At that moment, Matthew came up. They greeted each other. And David introduced me to, to Matthew. And he sat down and we, it was like we'd known each other forever. We just talked about film and music and everything. Uh, Matthew Kasson is the the man who was sort of behind the the idea of the boy bar beauty Creative. and gathered all the girls together mm-hmm. and sort of molded everybody into what it was that that the boy bar beauties became, right? Because that night when um when we were talking, um he said, "Oh, um I was just downstairs talking with Paul McGregor and the manager about doing shows here." And it's like, oh, wow, it seems like a great place, blah, blah, you know, all, all of that. And we talked about other things, and they walked me to my train, and then they were going to get on another train. So the train pulls up. Um, I was like, oh, well, um, great to meet you. We'll see each other again, you know, surely. Good luck on the shows. And as the doors are closing... Matthew yelled out, but you're going to be in the shows and the train pulled off. And I was like, what, what did he, what did he say? And it went on from there. I I went to the first rehearsal. I was super, super, super nervous and ran downstairs, threw up a little bit, I think, and then ran back upstairs and I think Matthew literally had to push me out on the stage. Wow. And from that moment, a star <laughs> was born. And that that star was Exit Fleming. Yes, at the beginning. <laughs> I remember that I was scared to bring that up to you because I wasn't sure if you were <laughs> if you still acknowledged that Exit existed. It's it's, it's part <laughs> of the lore. <laughs> And then you were telling me that there was another, you had another name before that too. What was that? Uh, because um, Glamour Moore is uh, writing uh, his uh, biography and um, he reminded me that it's gold. Gold was before Exceed. Gold Fleming? Yes. Gold Fleming was before Exceed. And that was because you you were gold, not because of Goldfinger, but because... Because of the storyline on All My Children. (laughs) Um, That that storyline at that time was her evil sister, Silver. Erica Keynes. Silver Keynes. Evil sister who was trying to push her out of her modeling contract. (laughs) She came on and she was a mousy little girl and she took off the glasses and it was like, why, Silver, you're beautiful. It was one of those. <laughs> and I was like, well, Silver is too white, so let me go. Gold. Gold. Um, the Boy Bar Beauties at the time, I'm going to see if I can, you know, there was uh, Cody, there was Princess Deandra, there was uh, Poe de Soie, there was Jasmine Allspice. There was who am I for? Um, Raven, uh, oh, Raven, um, uh, Miss Shannon, yeah, uh-huh. uh huh. Miss Oh, Miss Guy, of course. Miss Guy was Miss Guy from there from the beginning. I can't remember. Uh, Miss Guy was like two to three years after because um, the first Miss Boy Bar Shannon won, 
second Miss Boy Bar, Perfidia, had moved uh, to town from L.A. And mm -hmm. Perfidia, I think, was the second Miss Boy Bar. And then the third Miss Boy Bar, Perfidia, found Zaldi. Oh, wow. And, um, like, molded Zaldi. And Zaldi won Miss Boy Bar. And I think Guy was in that Miss Boy Bar. So that would be the third year. Wow. I don't remember Zaldi as a Boy Bar beauty. Do you guys remember that? No. She was the third Miss Boy Bar. Evil bit. Wow. I was never Miss Boy Bar. <laughs> no, well, you no, you were everybody's Miss Boy Bar. Yeah. In our heart, you were always Miss Boy Bar. Um, there was a Boy Bar code that was like, no wonky shoes ever. <laughs> What were some of the other rules? Um, I think shoes had to match um, the outfit or go with the outfit or have an element of the outfit. No wonky hair. And um, I can't remember the other one. The outfits were, were everybody sort of shared outfits and shared wigs and everybody was helping everybody. It was a very communal atmosphere. Yes. Right. Well, um, and Matthew and Shannon were master uh hair hairdressers yeah so yeah. we had hair uh done and um shannon also did makeup so you know there were tips and tricks that were thrown in um matthew also knew like you know about clothing and everything like that and we had glamour more mr david who yeah. literally be on the sewing machine downstairs in the basement finishing up outfits and we would go out um on the stage in them because every outfit on every uh boy bar float was a uh, mr david original right i think i had some mr david originals until the like 2000s i wish i still had some um uh, and all the backdrops were you did the backdrops because of your fashion illustration yeah, i did i did a couple of them so some of them were other were other people, but then like you know if if it was Thursday night and the show needed to be done, oh, Connie can do it. If there was a wig, oh, Matthew or Shannon can do it. You know, if there was a gown, um, uh, David would do it. At what point did you move from Brooklyn? Like, how long were you staying in Brooklyn during this? Um, the first like three or four years and then Jojo and Kevin McHugh, Jojo Amarico and Kevin McHugh were walking by Boy Bar and we started to talk and Kevin was like, oh, well, I need a roommate. And I moved in with Kevin for like, I think um, a year or two years. And then after that, uh, Chicklet, Chicklet and Eric Conrad, I moved in. I can only imagine <laughs> the stories about that. <laughs> I shall yes. save that for my book, for my publication. <laughs> I'll have you know. An early mentor of yours was also International Crisis. Yes. The legendary International Crisis. Um, I remember I was living on Thompson Street and they lived across the hall. It was um, Perfidia and Clark Render in International Crisis. And then Suzanne Barsh's boyfriend lived upstairs. 
And when I tell you that stairwell was bugle beads and feathers and sequins all day, every day, yeah. all night, every night, it was insane. But tell me about your relationship with uh, Crisis. Matthew um, was saying, oh, well, Crisis is going to come in um, on, I guess, Tuesday. And I didn't put two and two together because she was a judge for the second Miss Boy Bar. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know of her. I didn't know who she was. And I thought she was just another white woman. I, I, I thought I thought she was like um, a glamorous showgirl. <laughs> a Chichi Valenti or uh, Annie Sprinkles. I thought she was that kind of woman in the scene, but she was. Uh -huh. I didn't, I didn't know that she was, that she was trans. So the day of rehearsal came and I was like, still, who is this white woman? <laughs> and she said, um, okay, play my tape. And she started to perform and it was a complete lesson on being a, professional, a performer, a glamour god, a, a, a glamour goddess and a star. Yeah. At yeah. rehearsal in plain clothes, no nothing. And it was still there. She could just turn it on. Yes. A seasoned yeah. entertainer and gifted, 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 gifted goddess. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Cause I remember in Andy Warhol's popism, he's talking about this 15-year-old uh, queen who's just hit the scene and everybody is all gobsmacked. And it sort of sounds like your story a little bit too, where there's just like, all of a sudden the entire town just like turned and it was crisis. And this was like in the late, in mid-60s yeah, probably. But she is one of the girls on stage um, in a rehearsal scene in The Queen. She is one of those girls. And and I think there is a photo or film of her when they pan the, the contestants. I think um, she's in that scene, too. So um, that night after after performing, we were sitting around and she um, came and sat down next to me. And she said, when you're ready, come and talk to me. And again. Who is this white woman and what is she talking about? Because I I hadn't I hadn't like processed. Yes. I hadn't processed it yet. But a couple of months um after I did and she just taught me so much. So much about being a trans woman and the world and being a professional and she saw my trajectory. She saw what I could be and wanted to make sure that I would be prepared. Don't you wish that she was around to see everything that happened? The fruits know? of her labor. I know. I'm just curious because the world has changed so much since then. So I'm kind of curious about like some of the things that she said to you back then. Like what were some of... Uh, her lessons or the things she taught you to be prepared for? Um, well, she gave me April Ashley's book and mm -hmm. I read it and I came back and I was like, well, you know, 
um, I don't know how this kind of speaks to me. It speaks to me as a trans person going through like, you know, transition, but it's like, she was a model and she was like, and she was like, well, I see this in you. I see that you can go to Paris or like go uptown in New York and model. And I was like, but how? And she's like, well, how did she do it? She had the tools. She did not let the world inform her of who she was and what she could achieve. And that really stuck with me that you cannot let the outside world put their yoke of shame and violence and ignorance on you. You cannot take that in because it blocks your trajectory and what you can mm -hmm. do because it gets into your head and then you stop yourself from doing it first. And then they just come behind you after they like sort of infected you, they come behind and then they push you even more down into the dirt. Wow. Who was, there was the, um, the black trans woman who was on the cover of the Clairol, the bottle um, of the uh, Tracy Africa. Tracy Africa from the House of Africa. And um, I imagine, I, I think I've heard you talk in, in interviews before about if you had known that story, if you had known that there were other women before you, it might have made your journey a little easier. Yes, because, because um, she did mention Tracy Africa. She mentioned Patasa. Um, oh, Patasa, yes, at Studio 54. Because they, they were both muses of Salvador Dali. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I looked up to her and looked at her journey as unattainable for me as a black trans person. But then she would say, no, there's Tracy Africa. And then she told me of other girls. But at that point in time, it was very secretive and in very hushed tone. Uh -huh. hmm. So I think I saw Tracy once and I think Deandra introduced me to her. And then after she walked away, uh, Deandra's like, that's Tracy. The backstory here is that um, back in the seventies, Tracy Africa, a trans woman was on a bottle of Clairol hair dye yeah. that women all over the country bought, but nobody knew that this was a trans woman and uh, except for in the community. And then it was sort of, uh, let's keep this a secret type thing. Yes. And somebody outed her and yeah. he went to Paris because I interviewed her for um, the gallery in Montreal where my art was. Mm-hmm. And she said, like, you know, uh, this guy who knew her from Jersey City was on the shoot and outed her. And she was like, well, let me go to Paris. And she went to Paris, got an agent there, started to model. And she was a fit model for Givenchy. And she came back, built her book there, came back and was one of the girls in a Afro Sheen, Ultra Sheen, or Fashion Fashion Fair ad. And somebody recognized her again, and she was outed again. So that sort of cut her career. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
but it's like, you know, when I was coming up and when crisis would sort of tell me, I, I don't know if she didn't want me to take that in and stop me from my evolving and from me just going and sort of going for it. You were working with Pat Fields. You were working at Pat Fields when um, uh, you your modeling first started taking off. And I think your first one was Andre Walker, yeah. right? Is that yeah. the first? And then um, uh, Stephen Mizell came in the store and that's when he sort of, no, no, no? okay. Um, the Patricia Field Ball, Right. Okay. Stephen was a judge. Right. And um, a couple of months later, he asked Jimmy Paul, find that whore <laughs> in Patricia Field's ball. Because uh, he was shooting um, the Azanina Laya book, the ill-fated one, and he hated the pictures because they were boys in his clothes, blah, blah. So... Um, <laughs> That was my first, like, shoot. But I had been shooting with, like, smaller photographers in the hood and, like, doing um, shows for La Copia and, like, you know, mm -hmm. the fashion shows at Limelight and Palladium and all like that and sort of building momentum. So you knew what you were doing when you hit the, the runway. You, yeah. you sort of had figured that out. Yeah. Yes. And you could turn a pose. Yes. And I don't think I would have been able to do runway if I hadn't sort of been a performer at Boy Bar because mm -hmm. it rebuilt mm -hmm. me and it took me out of my shell and made me confident enough to go out there and go for it. When you're modeling for Mary Glare, and when you are in that red bugle beaded cowgirl outfit and you are stomping down the runway, it is one of the most iconic runway looks of the 1990s, just bar none. That red beaded mm -hmm. outfit and the way you just worked the stage, it really is. It, it's just set the tone for so much. It's amazing to think that the impact that look has. Well, that look wasn't, um, that look was originally Naomi Campbell's oh. and she couldn't make it to the fittings and, um, Pearl, the fabulous yeah. Mr. Pearl was a former roommate of myself, uh, Chicklet, Eric Conrad, <laughs> uh, Mr. Pearl, um, Vicky Bartlett, Sticky Vicky. Oh my God. Vicky, <laughs> I love Vicky. Yes, we were all we were all roommates. Is this the place on um because where I live too, where it was Phoebe's apartment? It was the Ninth and Hudson. No, we were on Avenue B and Sixth. That was around the corner from where Fenton and I were living. Because I remember a few times. Don't you remember once Fenton talking to Eric Conrad and falling asleep? while we were talking to him and he ended up coming. This is the thing, the thing that makes me always love Eric. He was really concerned and he ended up at the door. Like, anyway, I digress. Yes, because uh, <laughs> you know, Eric could go on and tell these long stories and I literally <laughs> fell asleep while he was talking. Yeah, yeah. And then the next thing I know, the buzzer was going off. Now it's like, are you okay? And I was like, oh God, I'm so embarrassed that I was like, 
I thought I can't get over living with Mr. Pearl because the outfits you must have had access to. No, see, seeing stuff come to come to like, you know, from a bolt of a bolt of fabric, and then there's like this gorgeous, incredible thing for Lee Bowery. It was insane. Because I know he's talked about how he would bead for like 19 hours a day yeah. and get everybody in the room to be, were you, did he make you bead with him? Yes. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I beaded a couple of those red beads for the cowboy look. Wow. So, so it was supposed to be Naomi's. He was there and then he reached out to you or suggested or how did that work? Well, um, the first time I shot with Mugler was in New York. And then he invited me to shoot in um, Alamaguardo, New Mexico. I, I had gotten this Moschino cowboy hat in Japan. And we were out in the desert. And I'm like, oh, I, I could wear my cowboy hat. And I mm. got out of the car and went into the trailer um, with my cowboy hat on. And um, um, Manfred came into the into the trailer and like, who are you? And he's like, oh, it's you. And then after, after that trip, that's when um, they said the red uh, cowboy outfit should go to Connie. And wow. it was kind of kismet because Pearl was right down the street. I could go for fittings. And it fit you. Like, I've never seen anything fit anyone more. I imagine Naomi was probably a little pissed afterwards. <laughs> a, a, a little. <laughs> <laughs> and I've also heard you say in interviews that that first time you went to Paris, it was it was fabulous and a lot of doors open and everything. But when you went back, there were some other trans girls and the the models there were sort of not having the trans girls. Well, there were always trans girls because well, before, sure. okay. before me, uh, there was uh, Terry Toy. Uh -huh. Yeah, of course. And yeah. like before her, after her, there were girls, but they were stealth. And it was right. you worked until you got discovered. And mm -hmm. somebody outed you. But mm -hmm. in my case, I sort of already had a name as a performer. So I was kind of put in the drag box for a lot of it. And then, you know, when I said I was trans, it was sort of put aside. And for the sake of the story, it was always drag. Uh-huh. They didn't want to deal with the trans being addressed. Because the, the drag was sort of a, like they were clowns, then they were, you could sort of, but they didn't want any of the girls who would be serious competition. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating, the idea that it was stealth. And when do you think it sort of changed or why do you think it changed? Or has it changed at all? Well, it has, hasn't it? It has, it has changed. Um, there are all, all, all of these girls now that are out and proud. And it started to happen in the early 2000s. The history had started to come out. My history, Tracy's history. Um, and it wasn't so easily put down. 
And then during like the late 2000s, you know, there were models that were coming out who weren't going to be sort of silenced or put aside. And the political landscape started to grow tiny, tiny, tiny bits. And then by the Obama administration, when there were laws repealed, don't ask, don't tell, there were um, certain uh, things with trans rights that were being addressed, there was really no need. And then this, our phones and Instagram and YouTube and this sort of world where there was sort of a democratization and a leveling of the field where you could put out your own content. Mm-hmm. You weren't relying upon someone else to, yeah. You didn't have to uh, sort of depend on a brand or an agency or a you know designer to mm-hmm. champion you. You championed yourself, and then they came to you. You became your own brand. Yes. So all of those things that sort of came together to push it to now where the brands and companies are wanting that representation. And if they don't have that representation, they will be called out for it. Right. Mm -hmm. It started in the early 2000s then came to a tipping point in the late 2000s, early 2010s, where it didn't have to be hidden. You could push, you could, you know, have Laverne on the cover of Time Magazine, that tipping point. Mm -hmm. And after Mm -hmm. that sort of tipping point, there was a real sort of push to have representation. I'm obsessed with like, um, with um, Drag Race and T.S. Madison. I I I, oh, I, I, yeah. just, I just can't. You do you know T.S. Madison? You must know. No, T.S. I, I know of her, but I don't know her. Oh, you need I, to be on her show. I, I, I I'm gonna hook yeah. you guys up. You need- oh my god! Yes. Yeah, you you guys will. She is a who you will love her. Oh my god, she yeah. she she was also a tipping point in the mm-hmm. conversation in the in the sort of I am not going to be stealth or hide mm-hmm. who and what I am because who and what I am is not wrong. And the other thing I I, I think about TS is like like you were saying, Connie. She's been an entrepreneur all the time, like with her own, just running her own business at any stage, even yeah. even with the sex stuff in the beginning. Yeah. It's all business and she's so good at it. And she's like just upfront about it. And it illustrates and highlights what the, what society is like and how society treats the trans, uh, the, the trans world and trans people. You mm-hmm. either have to be on a stage or you have to be on a corner. We don't want you yeah. checking, uh, checking, you know, groceries at the Kroger's. Uh-huh. You have to be down in the dirt so that I can stand on top of you and blame you and make you the monster, you know, deflect, yeah. deflect mm-hmm. and throw my 
discontent and my fear mm -hmm. on you. Do you think that this new generation, that they look to you as a, a trailblazer and they, they, do, you, do you feel recognized and you feel um, seen? Um, yeah. And yeah. it's, it, it's, it started, it started at, at that tipping point, even before, like on Tumblr, mm -hmm. they were all of the, the pictures of the Mugler years. And um, how many shows do you think you did you end up doing? I think all in all, maybe seven or eight. Mm -hmm. Because there was the light fall. We did um, the APLA show and um, in LA, which was the inspiration for Too Funky. Um, mm -hmm, and right. um, uh, the Suzanne Ball, um, the second one. Mm -hmm. so, right to say, uh -huh. a, 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 I think around eight. But I wanted to remind you, I don't know if you remember this, one of the most perfect days of my life was spent with you when, I, I don't know if you remember this, with Cece Borisovich, who was my roommate, and Michelle Tang, and we had been to Area. And then afterwards, Cece wanted to go to Bloomingdale's. And I had my car at that time, and we drove up to Bloomingdale's, all of us out of our minds, we should not have been driving, yeah. Cece drove. And we went there, and do you remember who we saw at Bloomingdale's? No, I can't remember now. I remember the day. We get to the perfume counter, and all of a sudden there is a hush all across Bloomingdale's. And you see all the, the salespeople start to stiffen up. And I look over and Cece is losing his damn mind, pointing and trying not to make a scene. And it was Garbo. We had a Greta, Gar Greta Garbo she was at the perfume counter when we were standing there. And we all just, I mean, literally the whole building was shaking oh because God. when do you have a Garbo sighting in New York? That was like, when it's like seeing Jackie O. Yeah. And we we all just lost our minds. And then afterwards, and I'll never forget this, <laughs> Cece took the car home. And then you and I walked over to the Trump Tower because I used to go and get um, chicken salad from the Trump Tower and eat it under the waterfall every morning after the clubs. And so you and I went and we got chicken salad and a mimosa and we sat for like four or five hours under the waterfall talking. And it was just one of the most, most lovely days that I always remember. Do you remember that day yeah. at all? I, I, I no. remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I remember being in the car with you and Cece and we went, we went to Bloomingdale's because it was the overwhelming smell of the perfume. Yes. Because that first floor, I remember being yes. overwhelmed and that's what started us with the hee hee and the ha ha. I don't remember Garbo. <laughs> yeah, Garbo was there. I do remember um, you going and getting chicken salad. <laughs> Yes, I would get chicken salad on a toasted bagel and a mimosa, and I would walk up to the Trump Towers. Like, what was I? I mean, like, literally, like, 50 blocks. I would walk every morning after the clubs. Because that was New York. It was our playground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, um, but I remember getting Paloma Picasso perfume, and it smelled, but I wore it every night for like two years, and people hated me for that. Because the next, um, or, or the following night, you came in 
to area smelling like <laughs> and people hated me. People were like, Ugh. "I remember." Uh, <laughs> oh my god! Because your nose, your olfactory senses remember things that your mind forgets. Yes. I could probably spray Paloma on you and take you right back to that day. <laughs> but though that that, that was when New York was like it was dangerous and dirty. But there was an energy and a street culture that drove this town. And it was that anything could happen any day or any night. Also, people were so open to the possibilities, right? There was a, there yeah. was a completely, you know, this is like, this has kind of shut people down because people are like this, you know, people are not. It used to be okay. that you were out looking and connecting and cruising and doing everything. And you would meet someone and you'd be best friends with them the next uh -huh. day. Like, I mean, like you could literally just make connections with people in a way that you really don't. Yeah, anymore. connections with the eyes, seeing somebody in person and making that connection with the eyes is invaluable. Mm hmm. You yeah. know, the other thing, though, is also people sort of, when people talk about fashion, they think Terry Mugler, obviously a genius, but, you know, they talk about luxury brands. And the whole idea is that it trickles from the top down. But actually, it's people like you. It's the kids in the street who actually, it actually pushes up. And, yeah. And I think that's a great untold story of fashion, that the downturn really shapes the culture much more than people have realized or allowed they've always sort of seen it as a sort of oh it's downtown it's great it's fun but it doesn't really count yeah it was like carl on avenue b threading beads right straight to the end runway. up on the paris runway yeah yeah but there's also it's funny because it goes both ways because then you have like in the ballroom scene you had so many people uh you know trying to get that up to, you know, trying to get the, the fashion look, mm -hmm. the uptown look. And then that goes from up to down. And then at the same time, there's the street kids, the graffiti kids and the skateboarders and stuff that are, that end up on the Paris runways. So it, it sort of goes both ways and then sort of goes kerflunky in the middle. And what we are forgetting is that we are spoiled rotten. We had <laughs> new wave, punk, rap, <laughs> Um, new romantic, new romantic <laughs> disco house. We are spoiled rotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had all of these expressions. We had all of these avenues. It's so true. They yeah. didn't, those are all new genres that just didn't exist. And what do we have today? What do we have today? We're sounding like old people. <laughs> but I do want to talk, I want to sort of segue into um, your career as a door girl, because I have heard stories about you, about just how impossible it is to get past Connie's ropes, and that you are one of the sternest, meanest door people since Mark Beneke at Studio 54. When did that start? And when did that persona start? And was it, was it conscious or was it something that just evolved? Um. It wasn't conscious. It sort of evolved because as a girl, as a trans girl, as a black trans girl, you know, it's, it's difficult to get across authority or listen to what I'm saying. 
It's something for your good. It's something for your benefit. And a lot of people mm -hmm. just don't want to hear that. You need to establish some firm boundaries. Yes. yes. Yeah. Because, because mm -hmm. and, and my history as a performer and um, as a trans person, trans woman, you know, there isn't a lot of respect or a lot of uh, credence to what you say. We live with this sort of narrative that trans are thieves and drug dealers mm -hmm. and sex workers. Sex workers and, and, and yeah, so yeah. you're fighting that. So it's somebody not wanting to take you seriously. So it evolved over time of me saying no and meaning it. Um, do you think that because you know this history and you under and you know that this is how uh, trans women have been perceived for so long that you are more aware of the microaggressions that are happening and um, uh, it, it maybe hurts a little more or it stings a little more um, and that that's why you react in a way after a couple of months at the door you kind of really learn how to read people and read them even, even as they're walking up. The way they walk up, the way they speak to you, the way they interact with you, whether they are receptive or they are entitled, you get that in the first couple of seconds of talking with them. And mm -hmm. sometimes even before they get to you, you already get a sense of that. So you already have to have your sort of armor up. So it's like, you know, whatever is kind of thrown at you, you can sort of absorb and cast off. But it's difficult. Um, how long have you been doing doors? And I... You started with Eric, right? With Eric Conrad. Was it at Beige or, or Poop or? Poop at the Supper Club in 1990. Right. That was my first tour. Oh, wow. And uh, then came, uh, Jojo was doing a party at the Limelight and wanted me to do uh, the door for his sort of um, VIP room mm -hmm. uh, because... After, after those two, you know, not a lot of people wanted a black trans person at their door or really? a black drag at, at, at their door. They thought it was, they thought it wasn't professional. They thought um, huh. it would cast a certain light on their club. So there was that sort of blockage, but um, with whom I knew in the business, I started to do the doors for the VIP rooms. And that really gave me an eye on how to curate, how to curate mm -hmm. a room, how to curate a crowd, how to see whom is going to be the wrecking ball, you know, <laughs> uh -huh. who's going, <laughs> who's going to come into the room and change the alchemy of this room. And, take it from fun to disaster. And that was for... Uh, that would usually be Michael Ehrlich, I assume. 
Oh, bravo. Oui, oui, oui. Um, so, you know, it was a really great learning experience that time of doing um, the doors for the VIP room. And then, like, you know, when somebody couldn't make it into work or they needed somebody extra, they would ask me. And that's when I started to uh, do more of the front door. There's a famous story about working with Eric when uh, for there was a party for Donatella and um, and he said, don't let anybody in. And when Donatella gets to the party, there's nobody in the party because you wouldn't let anyone in. That wasn't me. No, are you sure? Yes. No, that, that that's folklore. That wasn't me. It's kind of a good story, Tony. Oh, my God. No, that, that, that wasn't me. It's a good story. I don't mind. <laughs> okay. I want to. I, can I ask quickly? Like, probably, did you enjoy doing the door? Because also, James, didn't you do the door for a while? My idea for doing a door, I always remembered when I went to a club and I had problems getting in that it ruined my whole night once I was in the in, in the in the club and the clubs that I went to and just sort of sailed through and kissed the door person and those are the parties that I had the good times at so I always my philosophy was that I was going to make everybody who came to the club feel special and I was going to be happy and let everybody in well no club owner wants <laughs> <Yeah>. that <laughs> So I made sure that everybody was having fun when they went in and I comped every single person and I made all the cute boys kiss me. And I, uh, but I didn't last very long doing doors because that's not what was supposed to happen. They want uh, someone at the door who will be a gatekeeper. Because there's a point in time where you go behind the curtain and see who Oz is. Yeah. And when you look at it outward, it's completely different. It's a completely yeah. different like mindset. And and after Michael Alec, a lot of things changed. Like what? So. You know, a lot of blame came to nightclubs, a lot of sort of um, policing. Mm. It changed in, in a way that we were sort of put upon with this responsibility. This is this is after uh, the whole Angel yeah. and Peter Gation yeah. and all that stuff happened. There was a, a period in nightlife where um, things got very difficult yeah. for people, and a lot of people just stopped going out because there was so much um, anger directed towards club yeah. people and the clubs themselves and um, the policing of it. Yeah, like you know the task force and the the quality of life campaign and all that. Like, yes, you know. yes. I mean Giuliani making it the town he grew up in 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 Long Island. Right, like a fifties sort of. Yeah, like, yeah. But he's always been someone too who to identify an enemy and pick on them. Like he's, yeah. that's his yeah mo. You know, but he's like a Roy Cohn in, yes, in that yes. respect. Yes, completely, completely. And then after, I imagine that just as things are starting to turn around, that's when 9-11 happens. Yes. And then there's a whole other wave that has, is moving into nightlife. Um, well, when 9-11, I was doing the door for Danny Teneglia at Be Yourself in the old area space. Oh, uh -huh. And 
Um, there was a point in time where uh, it was closed because it was too close to Canal Street. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a big grand opening and uh, donated all the proceeds to the local fire station. They all came that night. Um, and they were so super thankful that we wanted to give back to the community because, you know, they had been there. They had come to the club on their nights off. They had come if, if, if a fire alarm had gone off. So we weren't like strangers and the boogie, you, you, you know, the boogie, like uh, creepy people. They knew us. We were real to them. Right. But people outside who maybe wouldn't get in, took it as a bad experience, jumped on the bandwagon of nightclubs being, you know, the be all and end all of what was um, wrong with society. Meanwhile, it's what has always been at the core of building this town from speakeasies and even before and nightclubs and cabarets going on until electric circus and all of that before and at the dawning of this the store club the el morocco like i mean new york has always been about nightlife just you know and you going back to like you said like in the like delmonico's in the 18 you know 80s and i mean like that was always part of what made new york special and people like giuliani just never recognized that and built it, built it to what it mm-hmm. is because yeah. it gave artists a place to work and then go home and create and build. It, it, it gave bands a, a place to uh, work and learn and make mistakes mm-hmm. and become the Ramones, Blondie, Madonna. Yeah. You know. You're, do you still go out? Are you still working at clubs? Do you, can you tell me a little bit about what happens now? Um, well, I work uh, at the Standard for Le Bain. Yeah. I work with Lady Fag for... Um, oh, yeah, for... Battleham. Battleham, yes. sure. So... Wow, that's fun. Um, you know, the energy is still here. The want is still here. It's difficult uh, because the pricing of living here is insane and yeah. the artist community is sort of not galvanized in the village anymore. It's sort of spread out in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx. But I think that's also kind of um, like the 50s because everybody mm-hmm. lived out in the, in the surrounding boroughs and then came to work in New York and fed the outer boroughs. So I'm feeling uh, that it is feeding the outer boroughs, like Dollar Bill and uh, their places up in the Bronx and in, you know, it's feeding the outer boroughs and giving a space for artists and the creatives to work. And I'm hoping that it won't all be priced out Right, right. A few years ago, I saw you on ABC 7 News in New York, and you were talking about um, the importance uh, for trans women to get mammograms, uh, which seems obvious because uh, it's something that, that you would need. But very often, trans women and trans men fall through the cracks either because of 
health uh, insurance or because they feel intimidated by going to a doctor or something like that. Tell me about your experience and how it was that you came to uh, be an advocate for that. Well, um, in I think it was around 2001, I uh, got implants and uh, they were textured implants, the new Vaux, uh, the new kind of um, implant that was then supposed to promote uh, creasing and ridging and they felt better and blah, blah. I'd done like, you know, my research and I didn't get um, silicone. I got saline and thought like, you know, oh, because I'm so thin, this kind of implant will work for me. And that's what, um, you know, the, the doctor who did them was saying it was going to be better for me and someone of my size in my frame. So everything went well. I recovered. I went along and I want to say around 2010, 2012, I started to feel like an itchiness in the right, in the right uh, breast. Um, it was summertime and I was wearing an underwire bra and I thought, oh, it's boob sweat. And like, you know, I'm, I'm getting boob sweat and it's the constriction of the underwire. So I stopped wearing an underwire bra for that summer and it went away. And in the subsequent years, every now and then it would come back and, um, like I think around 26, 2015, 2016, it came back, it came in and out and in and out and the itching and the discomfort became more and more. And um, I didn't have healthcare at the time. You know, I, I was working in, in nightclubs and being in sure. fashion illustration. And um, after 9-11, like, you know, it went from a net 30 to a net 90. You wouldn't get paid in 30 days. It went to, you'd get oh. paid in 90 days. So it was all of that kind of like, you know, the hustle of New York. And you're scrambling. To, you're always scrambling yeah. and you can't, yeah, you, you aren't taking, you aren't being a real person. Yes. <laughs> Around 2017, um, I was asleep and was woken up by scratching. I was scratching. And with these lovely girls, I had been doing it in my sleep. And I think I'd gotten like so far in there that I felt alone. And that's when it sort of like started to swirl in my mind that something is going on. And is there, are you panicked? Are you, how do you respond? I mean, do you, do you go to, uh, where, how do you get to a doctor? I was panicked and, but I didn't want to sort of spin out of control. I didn't tell anyone, but by this time, um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare was already up and running and Kevin McHugh, mm -hmm had been telling me, just go on and see if you can get coverage. 
And um, I think it was around a week after he was like, go on, I challenge you, go on and see if you can, um, I bet you can get coverage. And I went on and I, you know, the email came back, you're covered, your card will be in the mail, blah, blah. And I almost broke down and cried because I was like, oh, I can actually go and see what the hell is going on. Because when I first got them, like, you know, they teach you how to do the self-examination and I would do it and I wouldn't feel anything. And like, I always thought um, in the middle of it, maybe, maybe it was an infection of the skin with boob sweat and all of that. And um, it's just like kind of coming in and out. So I got coverage. I went in to the trans clinic at Mount Sinai and my doctor saw me and she sent me to the breast, uh, the Dubin breast center. I got a mammogram and they started to find out what was going on uh, because they took a biopsy and it so happened uh, that one of the doctors, because that, that sort of their working, it's um, you don't have only one doctor. You have a team of doctors that look at your case and like, you know, all of these different experiences sort of come together for each patient. And she had studied this rare form of lymphoma that was caused by textured implants. And that's when my diagnosis came back because I'd always um, like, you know, done, like I said, the self-examination, but um, at the beginning when I'd first gotten them, they were saying that doing a mammogram wouldn't really help um, because the implant would block sort of the full picture. Uh, see, okay. see, it's so interesting because Michelle Versace, we did a film with her talking about her breast implants and she had them removed after years. God of bless her. God bless her for, for her journey right? and for her being so giving. But isn't it amazing? Okay, so this is the number one procedure, cosmetic procedure in the world, breast implants. It just doesn't seem like they're that safe. And the, 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 the medical profession and the industry have always said they're perfectly safe. First, they said it was saline implants and silicon implants. They're safe, they're safe, they're safe. They're not, are they? they? Are. I don't know if it goes case by case mm. um, that like, you know, some people won't come up with any kind of the sort of symptoms of the poisoning of the silicone itself migrating through the body. Somebody's can accept it and some bodies cannot. It is sort of a, what aren't you telling us or are you just using us as mm -hmm. crash test dummies and lab rats? And then when it comes out in the wall to make the money, because it's a, it's a simple buck to yeah. make and it's an easy thing. Yeah. So they're pushing it and pushing it. They're drug dealers. They're just yeah. pushing some, a product that they know, you know, um, you had uh, stage three anaphylactic large cell lymphoma. Is that what it was called? Non Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yes. Non Hodgkin's. And, um, uh, what was the process of, of getting it out, of, of getting healthy? Well, um, 
uh, they did the biopsy. Um, uh, Dr. Yao was the, um, the doctor who had studied it as an intern, identified it, and um, she said, okay, we're going to take out the implants and see what's going on. Because um, they did an ultrasound and it wasn't only one lump. There was a mass also that was behind the implant. So when they went in and took out the implants, there was a mass and two lumps. And they also um, take um, some of the lymph nodes and they take the lymph nodes to see if the um, disease itself has migrated into the body. Mm -hmm. So they took out four lymph nodes and out of the four, two, there was the presence of the lymphoma. So I had to do chemo and radiation to sort of flush the body if it, if there was like, you know, micro of it in my body, it would be killed. How long, how long was the chemo and, and radiation? How long did? Uh, six months. Six months of chemo every 23 days. Um, and I think 12 or 14 weeks of radiation in the area. Now, how did you, your body react to that? Was that, was it, was it very hard to go through or were you? It's a physical breaking down mm-hmm. and there's a mental yeah. Um, breaking down and a mental sort of coming to terms with going in, giving somebody your arm and they poison you. Yeah. And you know that they know that you know that we are poisoning you. And like, you know, we are bringing you to a certain point of death. We are killing you know, we are killing, we're, we're trying to kill it, but we are taking a bit of you while we're in there and at it. So, you know, the physical and that mental, but. But, but also at the same time, while you are having the, the being brought down, you have to fight like hell and fight like hell to have a positive attitude yes. if you're going. To, so so you have to go down in order to get back up again. And you have to it's I just it, it's just such a hard, hard journey. Well, um, I was really lucky that um, that I had the team that I had at um, Mount Sinai. They were very, you know, they they never, like, let me think that it was over. They Mm -hmm. always said, you know, get up and fight. Like, you know, you have it within you to stand up and to fight this and not be pulled down by it and also um work work kept me from going into getting dark yes. 
going to the dark yeah. west. Yeah. Um, so what is it you, you're, so you, you're, you, how many years are you, you cancer free? Uh, three going on four. God bless you. you. And what do you want to say to other trans men and women out there about that? Um, our bodies are, are unique. Our cases are unique. Um, do not be sort of put upon by society and their sort of view of our lives it is their problem and do not give them a chance to infect you with their mm. self-hatred and their anger our bodies are unique our journeys are unique and we have to be our own best advocate we just just as we know within our bodies who we truly are we cannot separate our bodies and our journey because mm -hmm. the means to an end isn't the goal the goal is to be fully healed and formed into a person without the sort of dysphoria and all that that comes with it our journeys are to build us to um, personhood mm. and a healthy personhood. And we cannot put our transness before our bodies. Our bodies inform us and we have to be our own best advocate. Uh, Fenton, did you have anything else you need, you wanted to ask? I mean, or? so much, but really, I just wanted to say yeah. it's, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and having a real conversation like this. And I, I, I just struck by like it, it. I think so often the 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 contribution of trans people is it's not just about tolerating or accepting; it's really about recognizing the pioneering cultural influence. That to me is the piece that's missing in the, in the in the conversation that's been had in the culture at large. You know, what do you think, James? I mean, it, it's like it's just been such a key part of downtown, and that downtown has been such a strong part of shaping this. Such a strong part of shaping American culture that it just never gets acknowledged. Well, it does seem that every few years the needle moves yeah. a little bit, and um, it feels like there's been so many conversations recently. You know, it's, it's some it's, sometimes it's the L, sometimes it's the G, sometimes it's the B, sometimes it's the T, sometimes it's the Q, and it's nice that everybody's stories are being told, and that you know we can all be a part of that and and celebrate and. And the, the pioneers of the past and uh, the people who are, you know, making the future. No, because you what what you're what you're doing here and now is sort of breaking that breaking that cycle of stealth and not telling and not yeah. mm -hmm. um, not not acknowledging that um, we in all our LGBTQness contribute to the world yeah and it isn't just through art it's through science it's through um government it's through um medicine and there is so much of a wealth of knowledge and experience that we can give 
to each other and to the world. That, that have been lost, that, that, that so often have been yeah. lost in, in history. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, 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 um, if we hadn't lost who we lost during the AIDS um, crisis, what would the world we would have be? a generation what would this of, be? of mm-hmm. so true? Yeah, so true. And even the medical breakthroughs because of AIDS, you know, was so useful, have proved to be so useful retrovirals in terms of COVID. You know, the undergirding yes. of the, the science that has enabled that rapid solution, the, ra- the very super fast um, vaccine, is based on a lot yeah. of the principles that were discovered in AIDS research. And it was Fauci who was back in the age, yes. you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, he was at the forefront. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Connie, for coming on. It's so nice to see you again. And it's been such a, it, it's, it's been a roller coaster, the, the conversation, as it should be. Um, uh, but I'm so glad that we've had a chance to reconnect. And I hope uh, to see you when we come back to New York. Definitely. Please, please come, come, come by. We have to have... Um, uh, uh, a ladies caucus and go to blooming we'll, we'll go have we won't go to trump tower but we'll find some place and have some chicken <laughs> we'll, salad we'll, we'll go to bloomingdale's <laughs> and we'll um we'll run screaming through and buy some perfume and, and we'll pay homage to the ghost mm, of garbo hello. oh thank you so much connie thank you so wonderful to see you hope to see you in the flesh soon a la blondie you look awesome, by the way. Thank you. So do you. Say hi to Rue for me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. So wonderful you. to see you.